If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself. But even better, they've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It's Saturday, April 17th. If you weren't paying attention midweek, it was a huge news week. You may have missed it, but Bernie Madoff, Ponzi schemer extraordinaire, died at the age of 82. Now, for those of you who are not entirely familiar with the Madoff story, maybe you're young, maybe you were in school, you weren't paying attention. This guy ran a Ponzi scheme that was immense. In fact, it was so bad that his sentence was 150 years. He served a decade of that. So Mark and I thought it would be a great idea for us to rerun an interview that we conducted with Diana Henriquez. She is the author of the book called Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust. Now, that book was turned into an HBO movie in 2017. And you can still access that movie if you want the whole backstory. It's a great movie. You've got De Niro playing Madoff and Michelle Pfeiffer is playing his wife, Ruth. It gives you the whole background. In this first part of our interview with Diana, who is a great friend of the show and she's so generous with her time, we wanted to know why she was drawn to the Madoff story and how she got access to him directly. She went to go see him in jail. So here's part one of our interview with journalist and author Diana Henriquez. I think you're really going to enjoy it and you'll get down into the weeds of what exactly the Bernie Madoff story meant to her. 
let's talk a little bit about why you were drawn to the Bernie Madoff story in the first place. Now, you covered it for the Times, right? I did. I covered it really uh, the minute from the minute that the headlines moved. But I had actually covered Bernie before, Jill. I don't know if we mm-hmm. discussed this earlier, but when I was um, uh, I was working for the Times and um, Madoff's firm pioneered after-hours trading. So if you wanted to know what was happening in the stock market after the big board closed, who are you going to call? You're going to call the Madoff Trading Desk. So he was a you know name in my Rolodex, to pull up an ancient term. But I had also covered a couple of stories in which he figured uh, more prominently uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I knew who he was. I knew who the world thought he was. And the world thought... He was this very charming, smart guy, part of the also like the infrastructure of not just the trading organization, but he held positions of power. He did. He was incredibly influential in the evolution of NASDAQ. He was incredibly um, forward looking in terms of uh, automated computer trading, you know, trading platforms, electronic trading platforms. Funny story, though. The minute I saw the headline about him, you know, the first drill for a reporter is you look at the archives. What was the last thing we wrote about Bernie Madoff? And the first story that came up in the in the New York Times Electronic Ar- Archives was a story about a partnership that had been announced to build a new electronic trading platform between Madoff and Citibank, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, and I think J.P. Morgan. You know, these unbelievable firms. And I'm saying, my goodness, this man has just been arrested. So it it's a classic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. I knew Dr. Jekyll. I knew the Bernie Madoff that he was proud to say he was, the, the Madoff who was respected by regulators, who was uh, not only admired, but actually really liked by colleagues on the street. He and his brother, Peter, were were well-liked and, and um, popular figures on the street. No one knew the Dr. Hyde mm. facet of his, of his life uh, until it exploded on that day in December 2008. So when you saw the headline, did something in you click? Did you say, yeah. uh, oh, my God, that actually does make sense or not? N- no. The criminality never made sense, but I'll tell you what happened. You know, I've covered lots of criminals. I've covered lots of fraudsters, even lots of Ponzi schemers. Nothing in those stories hooked me the way this did, because by the end of that first night, we knew that Madoff had been turned in to the FBI by his two sons. And that fact, without knowing yet that the sons were blameless without knowing whether they were his accomplices or his you know innocent horrified offspring it was shakespearean i mean totally. truly i mean at that point either they were his accomplices and had betrayed him or they were uh, innocent of this crime and had been so devastatingly betrayed so from a human standpoint that was a facet of this fraud that I had not seen in all my earlier years of covering white-collar crime. And I think that's one of the reasons that this story has such staying power. The depth of this betrayal, I mean, it's, it's as old as Jacob and Esau. I mean, the fact that someone you love and trust that much would betray you that devastatingly. Mm. Um, 
And consider the times, too, Jill. You know, the whole country felt like they had trusted Wall Street and Wall Street had betrayed them. Right. He's so the metaphor. Suddenly he is the face of that betrayal. Right. So when you started covering the story, so that's the end of 2008, it's 2009, things are happening. Talk about how you got access to him. Like, what was happening? Were you sending him love letters in prison? Like, what was happening? Hi, love D. You know, like, what, what, was, what was going on? Well, it wasn't quite like that, but I was regularly writing him letters. Um, I had tried to get in to see him um, even before he was incarcerated. And then as soon as he was down at the Metropolitan Correction Center downtown in Manhattan, tried again. His lawyers just kept throwing up bars. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not until he's sentenced. And then, of course, in June of 2009, he was sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. When he arrived at the uh, facility in North Carolina, um, I started writing him. And every time one of the new books about the Madoff scandal came out, one of the new quickie books would come out, I'd write him again. And I'd say, you know, if you don't ever tell your side of the story, this two-dimensional cartoon figure here is all the world is ever going to know about you. Mm. And if that's what you want your grandchildren to be able to learn about what happened, then fine. But if you want a deeper, more human picture, I hope you'll talk to me. And I just kept that that same message over and over again. And ultimately, I think in the fall of 2009, he sent me a little short handwritten note saying that he didn't feel like he could talk to anyone yet because of uh, the civil litigation affecting his family in the bankruptcy court. But if he ever did, I would be at the top of his list. That's the Madoff charm working there, you know. Um, the following spring, um, I think the headlines had eased a bit. He felt like his Perhaps his family had moved a little bit away from the whipping post, and uh, his lawyer let me know that he was reconsidering his decision. At that time, the only person to have visited him, his sons would not visit him, was his wife, Ruth. Yes, at that point, Ruth was still visiting him and his lawyers, uh, and sometimes the lawyers of... um, uh, other people involved in the case mm-hmm. as it evolved. But that summer, yeah, it was basically just Ruth. So we're talking to Diana Henriquez, and she is the author of The Wizard of Lies, just now an HBO movie. So you should check it out because uh, the people at HBO would be very mad at me if I didn't say that. When you start interviewing him, and you do it over the course of a number of months, yeah. what is he trying to convince you of? Well, we had some bones of contention, and uh, one of his big uh, missions, I think, one of his big goals was to persuade me that this fraud actually started when he claimed it started, and I do not believe that. He claimed that um, he had been an honest investment manager until 1993, and then pressures of withdrawals and bad markets forced him into this Ponzi scheme. I don't buy that for a minute, and I've told him over and over again that it just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think it was a Ponzi scheme at least by the mid-1980s, and, of Mm. course, the prosecutors claimed in later trials of other people that it was a Ponzi scheme as early as 1978. Wow. So um, that was one of his missions, I think, was to try to make the case. Um, And his, 
His goal for that, I think, was to try to shelter as much of his family's income as possible by drawing, uh, that, line drawing that line and saying everything before here was clean clean money. They're right. entitled to keep that. Uh-huh. Um, it didn't work, of course, right. but, um, but I think that was one of his goals. But I also think we have to remember the scale of the narcissism involved here. Mm. I have never met a con man who didn't think he could con me. I've never met a con man who didn't think that if he could just sit down and talk with me and explain it all to me, I'd I'd get his side. Um, and Madoff was no different than that. I think he felt that that he could uh, persuade me that his version of the truth, his view of himself as a embattled money manager who just got on the wrong side of the market and and was. Uh, was swept away uh, before he could make things right again, um, and and who is being vilified by all these greedy investors who should be grateful for all the money he made for them over the years. That was the Madoff theme song, and he, I think, thought that he could sell that. You know what's very interesting, though, about his scheme versus so many other Ponzi schemes, which is he never promised to hit a home run. And that was sort of like the sheer brilliance that was underlying the oh, scheme. And don't underestimate the brilliance of Ponzi schemers. I think they have an annual conference where they have <laughs> workshops on how to do it. And there's the Madoff technique now. Mm. The Madoff method of running a Ponzi scheme is exactly that. Never promise pie in the sky. Never pressure people to invest right this minute. Uh, in fact, if possible, tell them you just don't even want their money until they're begging you to take it. Mm. That was Madoff's method. And never make it sound too good to be true. There's a great line that Pat Huddleston, the fraud analyst, uh, observed about Madoff. He said, if it sounds too good to be true, you're dealing with an amateur. Oh, my God. That's and great. it's so great because Bernie was a pro. He could never have persuaded two retired CEOs of Merrill Lynch, the retired chairman of Morgan Stanley, uh, the famous economist of Solomon Brothers, he never could have persuaded those people to buy into what we think of as the classic Ponzi scheme. Right. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. No, never was. Mm -mm. It was just a conservative, steady, not volatile investment. It was sort of like the hedge fund world's money market fund. Mm -hmm. You know, it was liquid, far more liquid than most hedge funds were. Mm. Um, And that of course, was its undoing because when the financial crisis hit in 2008, lots of his biggest investors had to pull money out, not because they thought he was a fraud, but because it was the most liquid asset they had. So all those redemptions come in and then... And he does does not have the money to cover them. When you first went in to start the interview process with him, did you think the kids... We're guilty. Did you have an opinion? I did have an opinion, and um, and the answer was emphatically no. Really? Well, look at the circumstances. Um, you know, both of his sons were represented by a single attorney. That raised eyebrows immediately among my friends in the defense bar, because they said, "Well, you know, if, if those two men have any criminal liability, they need separate lawyers." They need separate counsel because the best deal for one of them might be to roll over on the other one uh-huh. to, to testify against his brother, which would, of course, just amplify the Shakespearean tragedy here. But that didn't happen. They didn't get separate counsel. They continued to be represented by the same lawyer. So that gave you something you had to explain away. And 
I could never explain it away. Um, also, my as I became more convinced from my research, and this is before I interviewed uh, Madoff, as I became more convinced from my research that this fraud was much older than he was claiming, that it had gone back at least eight to ten years earlier than he claimed. Well, his sons were in high school. Yeah, that doesn't make junior sense. Junior high. So how did that conversation go when when one of them comes out of the University of Michigan and the other one comes out of the Wharton School and decide to go to work for dad? And he calls them and says, look, Mark, Andy, I have to tell you something. Got a great little wholesale training business here. And downstairs, we're running a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And they say, oh, dad, that sounds like fun. Sure. We'll hang out. Mm. I, it never made emotional logic that he would have... Uh, exposed them to that fraud. Once you knew it was already in progress the day they arrived at the firm. But but not with his brother, because his brother was there from the beginning. His brother was there from the beginning. And of course, Peter Madoff did plead guilty to a set of uh, securities fraud charges and is serving a prison term as a result of his um, failure to police what his brother was doing. He was the chief compliance officer at the firm, a lawyer by training. He really had no excuse for not having um, uncovered this fraud, but he insisted right up to his sentencing uh, hearing that he had not known about the Ponzi scheme. He had simply trusted his brother and done what his brother had told him, and what his brother told him to do put him in that legal peril. Mm. Now, what happened to his Peter's daughter, Shana? How did she end up in this? She, she was in the compliance department also. She was the uh, uh, deputy counsel to the firm. No charges were ever brought huh. against her. Um, like every member of the Madoff family, she faced civil litigation from the bankruptcy trustee claiming assets. Uh, the theory there being that everything that anybody who worked for the firm got were the fruits of Bernie's crime. Let's just cover that for a second, because uh, Diana Henriquez, the author of The Wizard of Lies, uh, when the when the bankruptcy proceedings go on, they claw back all the money. Now, are these all of these investors that were made off investors who said, you know, my life savings gone. Has everyone recouped a, a bunch of money and how much of that? I mean, years yeah. later now. Well, this all has to be said in the context of some investors weren't eligible to recover anything right. because they were indirect investors, several layers removed from Madoff himself. Other investors were not eligible to recover anything because over the life of their Madoff account, they had taken out more than they had originally That's put That's like the in. will ponds. Yes. And so they had to give money back. They got no money mm -hmm. uh, in recovery. And, and then the big caveat, what is being returned to the investors who are eligible to recover money is their original capital. Not what they thought they made. Not what they thought they had made over time. So if you were a good little school teacher, and there is, I, I've talked with uh, one, good little school teacher putting her money with, with Madoff, um, and you put in over time your 100, 200,000 in savings, and you watched it grow to a million, million and a half dollars, and you think you are set for retirement. You're going to buy the RV. You're going to cruise the state parks and the federal parks. That's going to be your retirement. And then you discover, A, it's all gone. And B, if you recover everything you're eligible for, 
it's your two hundred thousand. You get your basis back. You get That's your it. basis back. And so, yes, the small investors uh, have all been made whole in terms of getting their investors mm. back. By, by that, I mean those who were entitled to uh, recover a million dollars or less. They have all gotten their capital back, which is a remarkable outcome for a Ponzi scheme. Among the larger investors, who, in, of course, in many cases have small investors relying on them mm-hmm. for recovery, um, I think we're around 57 to 60 cents on the dollar in recovery now. But here we are, 2017, and this litigation, liquidation, recovery process is not yet complete. It's amazing. It is amazing. We don't really have a competent structure in this country to deal with a financial fraud on this scale, particularly a cross-border fraud. There are claimants in Luxembourg, claimants in Spain, claimants in France and and, uh, Brazil and London who are all being treated differently because their countries have different bankruptcy schemes. And so it, 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 a global fraud like this, uh, you know, it's sort of like the financial regulators of the world just throw up their hands and say, okay, you know, dive in and grab what you can. Right. Good luck. Let's get back to Bernie for a second. So you said he's the ultimate narcissist. A lot of times we heard these terms that were thrown around to describe him. He's a sociopath. He's a narcissist. Did you actually talk to a shrink about who this guy really was you clinically? Know, you know, I did, Jill. I would, Not just one. I was invited uh, to uh, meet with the psychiatric faculty's grand rounds at a major New York hospital to talk about Bernie Madoff. Uh, they had read the book and they were eager to discuss my impressions of him and to quiz me about it. And I was eager to quiz them about um, what these um, uh, traits and, and, and experiences and life stories suggested. Um, but I think we need to be careful about looking for the easy uh, diagnosis here. Uh, yes, without question, uh, Bernie Madoff is a sociopath. But, you know, if if you read Walter Isaacson's great biography, Steve Jobs was probably a sociopath. And, mm. you know, he created one of the most iconic brands in American history. So saying someone is a sociopath doesn't explain why they ran the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. So why did he? Well, here's my armchair diagnosis. Let's do it. Go, um, go, doctor. I had an odd snippet of a conversation with Bernie, um, if you'll indulge me, let me tell you. Um, You know, every author wants that aha moment that they can describe in the book. When did you realize? When did the hammer fall? When did the blinding flash? So I said, okay, Bernie, when did you first realize that your Ponzi scheme was going to fail? His answer was, it didn't fail. And I, I said, what? I mean, we're sitting here behind bars in the visiting room in Butner, North Carolina prison. So I said, what do you mean? He said, no, 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 it didn't fail. And he goes on to recount all of these bold-faced names who wanted to still invest with him. He claimed he could have raised enough money to cover all of these withdrawals. He had just gotten tired of the whole tap dance and decided to let the fraud fall apart. He had not failed. He had quit. And as I thought about that, as I reflected on that in the final draft of the book, it just struck me that this is a man to this day who cannot admit failure at anything. So I think so long as Madoff was able to be a genius, to, to, to win all the approval a narcissist needs, 
by being an honest investment manager. And there were years when the market enabled him to do that. Fine, he'd be an honest investment manager. But if the market didn't make it possible for him to be a genius, an admired, loved, revered genius honestly, he would be a genius dishonestly mm-hmm. because he could not face failure, couldn't admit failure at anything. So uh, there are other episodes that I mention in the book that carry that out where faced with a crisis where he had to tell the truth and admit failure or lie, he, he lied. the lie. So that was part one of our interview with Diana Henriquez, the author of Wizard of Lies. That is the book about Bernie Madoff. Tomorrow, we'll have the second part of the interview. In the meantime, why don't you head on over to HBO and check out the movie version of Wizard of Lies, and then you'll be prepared for part two of our interview. As always, we want to remind you to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing, and to do something nice for someone else today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.